I love that simple little song, man sees the outside, but God sees the heart. And that really is one of the major themes of First Samuel. Um, God knew the heart of Saul and what would happen with him. And God knew the heart of, of David, that David had a heart for his ways and for obedience. That doesn't mean that David knew every aspect of God's heart. Because David's going to find himself in some situations that tonight, tonight even, that he never expected. And um, he's going to be an example to us on how to act and how not to act when uh, life doesn't meet our expectations. Another important theme in all this, really, is I think you're seeing through this is, is the theme of worship and how worship is important to David. And certainly you've seen that in the psalm studies that we've done recently on Sunday evenings. That Psalm 34 that we've been through recently is going to tie into our narrative tonight, too. But then, as we finish up to chapter 20 tonight, last week we saw this other very important emphasis in 1 Samuel, and that is the friendship between Jonathan and David. And there's a reason why it's so important. It reflects the covenantal loyalty that God has with his people. Um, when it says that these men made are covenanted with each other, made a covenant, that's the most serious commitment that, that a person can make. And certainly uh, a Jewish person, an Israelite, could make at this time. And they were covenanting because of their relationship with God and because of the example of God's loyalty, his loyal love in their lives, but they were going to show that um, to each other. And so that's why really the whole passage, the whole chapter in uh, chapter 20 is talks about that and um, is focused on that. Uh, Jonathan is unaware of how angry and how murderous his father's intent is, but he tells David, whatever, whatever is going to happen in this, I am going to be loyal to you because we've made a covenant and we have that bond in our God, and I will make sure that I do right by you. So again, remember Jonathan faces Saul, and it becomes apparent pretty quickly, David's plan to be away during the festival dinners. Saul gets angry very quickly, um, speaks rashly, and, and that KJV word wroth, he's wroth and angry, and really verbally abuses Jonathan. That's not too strong of a statement, what he says. Um, and, and really, um, really attacks his manhood in a sense in those three areas that he needs to be careful because he's bringing shame to his own mother through this. And he's um, putting himself in a precarious position for his own future, allowing someone else who has been anointed king to really to take his place and all these things. And Jonathan just point, says two questions to Saul. Um, why are you attacking an innocent man? And what has he done? And Saul doesn't want reasonable questions. And he's not in the mood to give reasonable answers as he throws his spear at his own son out of anger, right? Jonathan leaves. He's angry. He grieves for David. But isn't interesting he would, we would say that Jonathan would legitimately have a reason to be angry and to feel shamed for himself of what his father had done. But it says Jonathan is grieved for David, for how his father has shamed David. 
And again, it's just this purity of motive. There is no, not even a, a, a hint of Jonathan being jealous of David in any way. I mean, that's just unheard of in these royal family, these kingdom situations where everybody's looking out for what's best for them and how they can maintain the throne. I mean, you know this in stories and in history. This is unheard of. This is God's work in these men's lives. And um, Jonathan doesn't, isn't concerned at all for his own glory or for his own position. He's concerned for his friend. He realizes that he'd wrongly assessed the situation. And now, grieving as he goes, he must communicate with David that he has to flee. His father is literally, in the picture, throwing a spear at his son. He's insane with anger and jealousy. And Jonathan is grieved and angry because of his father's disgracing a loyal, righteous man. He knew David was still loyal to the king. David would gladly come back and serve under Saul if Saul would get his act together, so to speak, and he would serve loyally. Saul would have no fear for David trying to um, preempt him or trying to work against him, scheme against him in any way. And yet he disgraces this righteous man. And Jonathan's angry. But he knows he can no longer provide protection for his friend, right? And so they follow through on their plan. That's where we're at in verse 35. Takes a boy with him. He's going to shoot the arrows. And remember, their plan, if there is danger, he's going to shoot the arrows beyond David. And David's hiding place here, some well-known heap of stones, or at least known to Jonathan and David. Jonathan is going to shoot his arrows over that. He's going to call this little boy to go get the arrows, arrows, retrieve the arrows, and the signals that they have here are going to take place. So verse 35 of chapter 20, and it came to pass in the morning that Jonathan went out into the field at the time appointed with David and a little lad, a little boy with him. And he said unto his boy, run, find out now the arrows which I shoot. And as the lad ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. He just thinks it's target practice. We know a lot about uh, people having target practice, getting ready for fall hunting season, everything. This little boy just thinks they're kind of playing a game here, but it's not a game at all. And when the boy was come to the place of the arrow, which Jonathan had shot, Jonathan cried after him and said, is not the arrow beyond thee? Now that's a sign. That's a signal for David. It's not the one that David wanted to hear. It's not the one that Jonathan wanted to give him. And Jonathan cried after the lad. Make speed, and he's emphasizing these things, right? An impassioned plea for David to hurry and leave. Make speed, haste, stay not. He's basically saying, hurry, be quick, do not stay. The little boy thinks that he's talking to him, but in actuality, he is saying these things to David. David, it's time to run. It's time to get out of here. It's time to flee. And Jonathan's lad gathered up the arrows and came to his master. And the lad knew not anything. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his artillery. Um, don't think big guns and cannons and stuff. It's just his weapons, <laughs> his arrows and things unto the boy and said unto him, go carry them to the city. The details here pick up the tragedy of all of this. And as soon as the lad, the boy was gone, David arose out of his place. The boy takes the weapons and leaves, and David comes out from his hiding place. And his display at this moment of submission and respect for his friend Jonathan is really one of the greatest in the Bible. Look what he does. 
it says, um, and as soon as the lamb was gone, David arose out of his place. And that means out of, from the stone heap where he was toward the south and fell on the ground and bowed himself three times. Now, really, they didn't plan on meeting together again. Basically, the, remember the plan was Jonathan calls to David. David hears that it's time to, time to leave and to flee, and he takes off. And they're not supposed to really meet again because of the danger of all that. Saul's very good with having people around that know things. And yet it's like David can't help himself. He just can't leave without saying one more goodbye to his dear friend. And then this way that he comes up to him, um, bowing himself three times, three times showing submission and respect for his godly friend. That's unique within all the Bible. No one does that. And David makes it plain how much he respects and cares for his friend. And then it says here, of course, this Middle Eastern tradition of when you say goodbye, a kiss on the cheek or that kind of thing. It was normal back then. They kissed one another. Somebody told me recently, I think maybe it was Sandy or some somebody, yeah, Sandy, that he had some experience in, in the Middle East or with uh, some Jewish people. He was with them and two of them. And was it in Israel or was it over here? Italy. Italy. Sorry, it was Italy. Uh, where the men would go around friends and they would be holding hands, which to our minds is like, oh, that's, that's, I won't ever do that. But, it, and, and Sandy was a little taken aback, but they explained to him that that's just the sign of a good friend, that they're just that close and it's a sign of, of companionship and it's nothing wrong in their minds. There's nothing bad going on at all. And so it's the same thing with this aspect that says they kissed one another. It was a greet. It was a farewell embrace. And then they wept one another. And here's the emotion of the moment. Can you imagine these grown warriors? I mean, these guys are tough guys. They've seen a lot already. And here they are weeping because they can't be together. They know the stakes are high, but it says until David exceeded, or it basically means he wept the most, because for David, everything's turned upside down. He doesn't get to go back home like Jonathan does. He loses his friend, his wife, his family, and he's on the run. David knows the cost here. This is the last thing that he wanted, and really probably the last thing that he expected. In, in his service to God, this was one of those things that he didn't count on. And you can just imagine his in, grief is intense. And Jonathan here takes a moment to calm his friend and to remind him of the truths of God's word. And folks, you know you have a good friend when in the midst of your grief, they carefully, they don't reprimand, they don't, they don't bring harsh words, but they remind you of the promises of God. That's a good friend. And Jonathan says, go in peace. How in the world can you go in peace? Basically, depart in peace, David. <laughs> well, he's on the run. He has to run away from everything that he knows. Really, Jonathan? I mean, there's no peace in our minds involved with this. He's got to get out of there. What is Jonathan saying here? Remember that peace. And remember that peace concept in the Jewish mind is full well-being in body and spirit. Where does that come in the midst of what David's facing right now. Is Jonathan being naive here again? 
No, he's pointing out an important concept here that David needs to remember. For as much as we have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord, we made a covenant before God saying, the Lord be between me and thee and between my seed and thy seed forever. Jonathan saying, remember, in the midst of all of this uncertainty, David, our friendship and loyalty are secure. The covenant that we've made before God will be your stability, David. I'll have your back as much as I can, and it will provide protection for our families and for our future generations. All of this will take place. So go knowing that God's in this and that we have this stable relationship that um, will continue on. And when you're Going through difficult things, one of the great blessings in life is solid Christian friendships that you know have your back, regardless of what happens, that you can go to and talk to. Now, they didn't have cell phones. David and Jonathan couldn't call each other and talk to each other on a regular basis or post, well, they wouldn't post Instagram things anyway, because David's on the run. But they still, he knows, he's, he's confident that Jonathan will always be his friend. Um, one commentator that I read named Dale Davis said, biblical peace is not often general tranquility, but rather a rightness at the center in the midst of much turmoil. It's not a peace that God promises that keeps us from turmoil. And David's going to find that out. But it's a peace that keeps us stable in the midst of turmoil. Jonathan says, we have that. And that is an important emphasis as we continue here. And again, literally, David's life is turned upside down, and he's forced to live life on the run. Verse chapter 21, verse 1. David, then David, then came David to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest. Now, I was going to print out a wonderful map with all these. I've got this wonderful in my ESV study Bible. It has a graph and graphic of all the different places that David goes on his wilderness wandering, not wanderings, but running here. And then the power cut out and I wasn't able to print any of it off. So next week I'll have that. But if you've got a map, you could probably find where Nob is. It's just a great name for a town, Nob. <laughs> and, but it's important because remember at this time, there's no Jerusalem. Well, there's a Jerusalem, but it's not the center of um, Israeli worship. It's not the capital city yet. And where was it before? It was in Bethel. And what happened? The Philistines overran Bethel and captured it. And so Bethel is no longer the main worship area. So at this point, there are these different areas and towns um, in and around the area of Jerusalem where the people go for worship. You remember that the Ark of the Covenant ended up in a residence that was just southwest uh, of Jerusalem. But this town is north of Jerusalem and close to where Samuel lives. And it seems that um, at this point, there were a number of priests from the Aaronic priestly line. Um, and there was this town of Nob seems to be a Jewish worship center with a sanctuary. And many of the descendants of Aaron lived and ministered. And it was also near where David had recently stayed with Samuel. So it seems like a logical place for David to go first for spiritual encouragement. The overseer was a priest named Ahimelech. 
well, he remember this because this is going to come in into play pretty soon that Ahimelech was a great grandson of Eli. Now that doesn't mean that he's not a good man. Um, probably is a very good um, religiously devout man in many ways, probably does a, a commendable job as a priest, but we need to remember that. And it was a regular occurrence to have emissaries and members of the king's court visit Nob because this was a sanctuary, a worship center of some sort or another. But isn't it interesting to find out that the priest Ahimelech is very disturbed by David's arrival? What does it say here? David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech was afraid, literally trembling at the meeting of David, and said unto him, Why art thou alone, and no man with thee? Ahimelech doesn't know what's going on, but he knows something's up. And I don't know how he, if, if the Lord, if he had a spiritual sense of this, or somehow he looked at David and he could just tell things weren't right. But it's to the point where it literally shakes this man of God. And he's looking at David and saying, wait a minute, you don't normally come by yourself. This is different for you. This is strange. What's going on? And there's some sense with this priest that something terrible is afoot. And David gives him an explanation here that sounds like deception, and it could very well be. Why would David still be involved in deception at this point? Well, I think the best reasoning is he doesn't want to get Ahimelech involved in his own personal problem with Saul. He knows how angry Saul is, and he doesn't want to get these priests involved because he's afraid that Saul might do something to them. And so he couches his mission in terms that are very general. And it does come across as he's lying or being deceitful. But let me give you another option here after I read this. We'll work through this. David said to Ahimelech the priest, the king hath commanded me a business, or he's charged me with a matter of carrying out a mission, and hath said to me, let no man know anything of the business whereabout I send thee, and what I have commanded thee. And I have appointed my servants to such and such a place. He says, the king, but he doesn't give a name to the king, has commanded me with a particular matter, and I'm supposed to keep quiet about it. And I have some men that are going to meet up with me soon, some loyal men. But in the meantime, David needs two things. He needs sustenance, he needs food, and he needs a weapon because he doesn't have any weapons. He had to get out of Dodge, so to speak, quickly, and he has nothing to defend himself with. Now, is this a lie? Well, it's a possibility, and it's, it's probably a good possibility that he's referring to King Saul, and if he is, then this is a certainly a lie and deception. And again, we have that same sort of thing where is it not right, but is it acceptable during wartime in war situations to deceive? Like we have spies and different things today and different identities and such. Well, each person kind of has to work through that in their own mind. I do give a little bit of leeway, leeway in these war situations. Ultimately, this isn't David's fault. David hasn't put himself in a situation where he's in this amount of danger. This is all because of Saul, and he's just reacting to it, and he hasn't had a lot of time really to think through things. So he's just trying to scramble. The whole picture here is David scrambling to figure out a plan real quick because he doesn't know what to do. And that's going to be apparent in the next thing that he does, which really is kind of out there. But we'll get to that. 
So does the Bible, if it is a lie, does the Bible um, commend it and say, if you get in a tight space, just throw a little lie out there, a little deception, and it's okay. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible never says, the Bible is totally quiet on the morality of this with David. Doesn't say anything at all. Um, Could David be a little more careful and not have to be so deceptive? I think so, but I think here we can give him a little bit of room for understanding in this. We've never had to go through something like this, but there's another option. I saw this, and and one commentator made this point, and I thought, you know, that might be a possibility. He doesn't name the king, and David, in many of his psalms, let me read to you one, Psalm 5-2, hearken unto the voice of my cry, my king and my God, for unto thee will I pray he may very well be referring to God as his king, in which case this isn't a deception at all. That case, then, God has told him that he will take care of him, to not involve others, to not say anything about where he's supposed to go next, right? And he has people to help him. So he's basically on a mission from God, if we read this correctly. i I think there's potential for that. We're just not told. But overall, we have a picture here of a man that is desperate and trying to come up with a plan. And if he's leaning on the Lord, then great. What he needs now in the midst of this this running that he's doing, trying to get away from Saul, he needs food. Verse 3, now, therefore, what is under thine or what do you have on hand, Ahimelech? How about this? You guys have that bread that you offer many times. Or, well, David knew that they baked bread there. There was bread um, available for, um, it was called the bread of the presence, and it would be placed in the inner sanctuary where they would worship. And it was basically a picture of God's provision for his people. But that bread was special bread that when once they had offered it in in essence, in a picture to the Lord, then it was given to the priests and the priests who were ceremonially clean could eat that bread. And then there was common bread that everybody had access to. David's saying, thinking, you guys have that common bread that you allow everyone to come and and, and enjoy and, and get sustenance from. Can you give me five loaves of that bread or whatever you have on hand? And the priest Ahimelech said to David, and answered David and said, no, there's no common bread that we have available under my hand right now. David, we don't have any of that kind of bread that we normally give out. It's only the holy bread, the hollow bread, the bread of the presence. So we don't normally give that out, David. That's a special thing. But these are special circumstances. So the priest says, I will give you this bread. You're obviously desperate. You're obviously in need here, but you have to follow at least a general rule here. And that is just like the priest, you would have to be at least somewhat ceremonially clean. Now, there are all kinds of ways that you could be ceremonially clean. And Ahimelech just basically says this, just make sure that you're clean as far as not having had basically sexual relations, the men with their wives and things like that. If the young men have kept themselves at least from women, then I will give you the bread. They're, they're clean enough in this circumstance. And David answered the priest and said unto him, 
Of a truth, women have been kept from us about these three days since I came out, and the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is in a matter common, yea, though it were sanctified this day in the vessel. That's um, one way to translate this. Let me give you another way to translate that maybe makes helps us understand a little bit more what David's saying here. He could be, another translation is, truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young man are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today were the vessels be holy? This gives us a picture of David carefully following God's law. And he answers the priest. He says, of course, the men are holy. Of course, they're clean in this regard. When we go out to war, David's picture here is I always make sure we follow God's rules. I always do that, Ahimelech. And you can be assured that um, I'm following God's rules in this circumstance, too. Again, a picture of a man who is very concerned to obey God. The exact opposite of what we see in King Saul. Even in this desperate situation that David is in, he assures the priest, yes, we obey God's law, and therefore we legitimately can have access to this bread. So with that understanding in mind, the priest gave him the holy bread, the bread of the presence. This was a bread, by the way, um, that, let's see here. Every I wrote this down from another commentator. Every Sabbath, 12 loaves of this bread were piled on the table on the north side of the holy place in the tabernacle. They were, among other things, a quiet witness that Yahweh sustains his people and supplies their needs. So do you remember, with all of this going on, this incident, of um, a passage in the New Testament where this is this comes up again. Anybody remember that? Jesus brings this up. And let's go ahead and just, we've got a few minutes, turn to Mark 2, 23 through 28. And it came to pass that when he, Jesus, passed through the cornfields on the Sabbath day, and his disciples began as they went to pluck the ears of corn. And the Pharisees said unto them, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath day that which is not lawful? And Jesus said unto them, Have ye never read what David did when he had need and was unhungered, he and they that were with him, how he went into the house of God in the days of Abathar the high priest? Wait a minute, I thought his name was Ahimelech. Well, his son's name is Abathar, and he's going to um, come into the story very soon. And so it's still legitimately, you can say, the days of Abathar. And did eat the showbread, which is not lawful to eat, but for the priests, and gave also to them which were with him. And he said unto them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. And it just points out, why did God have these laws and rules and regulations? Ultimately, it wasn't his people for the rules, but the rules were for his people. Jesus points this out. And so when David's in desperation and needs sustenance, it's not that, oh, he has to follow the rules for the rules' sake. But yes, the priest can give some leeway here because the rules were meant for the benefit of the people. And David needed some bread and his folks and his people needed some bread. And so the priest says, as long as you meet the requirements, you can have this. Jesus' point was the Sabbath was made for man 
and don't get too technical on the details. And don't, don't put up all these rules and make people follow these Sabbath rules just for the sake of following rules. But make sure that it's in the spirit of what God made the Sabbath for in the first place. And that was for man to have a day of rest. And he's also pointing out, by the way, I'm Lord of the Sabbath and I can decide what happens on the Sabbath uh, better than you guys can because I have the authority. But that's another thing. So interesting how Jesus, again, takes another picture of David and uses it for his own um, illustration as well. So let's get back to the story here then with that in mind. Um, For there was no bread there but the show bread, verse 6, that was taken from before the Lord to put hot bread in the day when it was taken away. Now we have everything is going well. We have somebody lurking off in a corner, privy to the whole conversation, the bad guy that we don't want to hear any of this. And of course, you know, the drama of this, he's hearing every word. It's a guy named Doag. Even sounds um, mysterious and evil, right? Sounds um, like a bad guy. Doag was a man who was an Edomite. Um, Lurking off in the corner, we don't know where he came from for sure. Maybe he was captured by Saul, but he is in servitude. He's helping Saul. He's loyal to Saul, and he just happened to be there. Maybe he was on an errand for Saul. He is his um, chief shepherd and herdsman. And so the narrator just wants us to know in the midst of this conversation that's supposed to be secret for the safety of both men, That word is already getting out. Verse 7, now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doag, an Edomite, the chiefest of the herdsmen that belonged to Saul. Okay, so that tension and that drama of, uh uh-oh, the wrong guys hearing their supposedly secret conversations. And David said unto Ahimelech, and is there not here under thine hand spear or sword? Do you have at hand a weapon? For I have neither brought my sword nor my weapons with me. David needs weapons. He's not had time in his haste to avail himself of them, and he's in need of them. And the priest, Ahimelech, says, well, there's this sword of Goliath over here. Remember that? The Philistine? You remember him, David? Whom thou slewest in the valley of Elah. Remember that? Well, behold, it just happens to be wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. We put it in a safe place behind the priestly garments, and it's available If thou wilt take that, take it, for there is no other save that here. Nothing else like it, David. If you want a good weapon, that's a good one to take. And David says, you're right. There's none like that. Give it to me. The sword of Goliath ends up back in his hand. But in the midst of all this, there's Doag out there, and that's going to cause problems later on. And we're going to see probably next week. All right. So David's worked all this out. Whether he was being deceptive or not, we don't know for sure. Would it have been better for him to just come clean with the the priest and just tell him forthwith what was going on? Maybe, maybe. Um, I don't know. He, He wouldn't have been able to help in what happens next with Ahimelech that we'll find out next week. So it's it's hard to say. But David is doing the best he can in a panicked situation. But now it's as if as he's racing and fleeing away, he just loses all sense of 
wisdom and he's just in a total panic. Look at verse 10. And David arose and fled that day for fear of Saul. He's in a panic and fearful for his life. And he went to all places, Achish, the king of Gath, one of the kings of the Philistines. Well, that doesn't make any sense. You think about this. This is a man who courageously and confidently faced a Philistine not too far, not or, or pretty recently, right? And now he's running scared and not thinking clearly at all. Here's his current best plan. Run to an enemy with a sword from their hero whom you defeated in your hand and go to them and see if you can find um, security. Sounds like something that you come up with kind of on the fly, right? I think that's what's going on here. Maybe he figures that King Achish will be pleased to have as a defector one of Saul's high-level captains, but it's not going to work out that way. The plan quickly goes south. Let's see this. He goes to Achish, the king. I don't know if he tried to hide the sword or not. I mean, glass sword's a pretty hard thing to hide. Whatever. He's maybe trying to talk the king into seeing things his way, but the servants of Achish said unto him, wait a minute, king. Is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing one to another of him in dances, saying, Saul has slain his ten thousands, and David, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? And so David is quickly recognized by the servants and maybe some of the soldiers and different things as Israel's, really, he's Israel's superstar, right? And they remember the song, one of, you could say one of the top 10 hits in Israel is Saul has slain his thousands and David is 10,000s. We know the guy that that song's about. We know what's going on here. You don't want anything to do with him, Achish. Be careful here. And all of a sudden, as they say this, David all of a sudden, I think, realizes in the midst of his panic, you know what? This probably wasn't the best idea. <laughs> on, on thinking over this again, I probably have no business being in this courtyard amongst these Philistines. And so he's quickly trying to figure out a way to get himself out of the situation and does something that's humiliating here. You might say, well, it's resourceful. Yeah, but it's strange. What does he do? Uh, verse 12, and David lay up these words in his heart. It's like, oh, they remember me. Oh, no. And he was sore. He was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. Really, just think of David as fearful and in a total panic. Totally the opposite of what we've seen him in the picture of him before. What does he do? And he changed his behavior before them and feigned himself mad in their hands and scrabbled on the doors of the gate and let his spittle fall down upon his beard. What's going on here? Um, he quickly realizes the foolishness of his plan, and in desperation, he begins to act like someone that's insane, like a madman that's in their presence. And he begins basically to vandalize and draw, draw graffiti on their gates, and he's drawing things, strange figures on their gates, and he's letting spittle go down his beard. Now, that has more significance than what you may realize. Um, a man's beard in this time in history was very important. And you were disgraced if there was something, if you allowed something to happen to your beard. We find this out later on um, with David and some other activities that happens. Um, 
In fact, if someone's beard, if someone disgraced someone else's beard or did something to someone's beard, to, to another person's beard, that was actually almost considered an act of war. They took this so seriously. So David allowing himself to be disgraced in his looks and with his beard are all of these, the picture here um, of disgrace and insanity. And one author says this, David took upon himself the trappings of insanity to hide his sanity. King Saul surrounded himself with trappings of sanity to hide his insanity. I thought that was a nice comparison there. Well, the Philistine king, Achish, sees all this. And what is his response? Verse 14, he said unto his servants, Lo, you see, the man is mad. He's insane. Wherefore then have you brought him to me? Have I need of madmen that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Basically, Achish says, Guys, I've got my, my plate full of insane, strange people in my life right now. Now, I have no idea what that meant. <laughs> Obviously, this wasn't the only person who was acting strangely. And Achish is like, I, I don't need any more of these crazy, mad, insane people. Why did you bring me another one? Get them out of here. Throw them out. I have no desire to entertain an unhinged warrior. He's of no benefit to me. Throw the guy out of here. Get him out of my presence. And this is a humiliating moment for David, is it not? One of the lowest points in his life. Could he have done things differently? Well, certainly. Is God still protecting him and showing him grace even in his foolish behavior? He is. He is. So let's have some applications here of all this before we finish up and go to prayer. Jonathan and David and their covenantal friendship, their loyalty. What is the best example of God's covenantal loyalty and love and friendships today, folks? It should be within the church, right? That's where we should find that kind of relationship. And yet the church has become one of the primary complaint centers many times for insensitivity and contention. How many complaints do we get so often? Complaints of how everyone mistreats each other. And no concern for ministry to others. That's not true in all churches. Um, I don't get, I don't think I've gotten many complaints or any in our church here, but I've definitely heard them in the past. Remember one complained about how everybody mistreated him. And yet this person had no concern for ministry for people around him. He just wanted everybody to constantly minister to him and he couldn't see his own selfishness. I remember another one that loved the particular ministry focus they had as long as other members of the church didn't get in on their turf and they didn't encringe on something that they looked at as their ministry and you better not get near and try to be an influence in this. And, and you could give so many illustrations, right, of difficulties that people have had in the church today. Small slights are magnified rather than the goodness and greatness of God. Remember in David's Psalm 34, we talked about magnifying God's greatness. So many times in churches, slights, and irritations are magnified in the church. And yet at the same time, what Jonathan and David's story reminds us is that to have other saints support you and to have your back is a great comfort in the tumult of this world. It's supposed to be one of God's great comforts to us is to have the church folks in relationships that you know that the church, that, that the saints have your back. We are to be God's love in action to each other, just like Jonathan and David were. And we fall short of that so many times. 
as we go to prayer tonight? Do we have a love for each other and a concern for each other? Or is there something within our hearts? We're irritated and angry at that person. And we'll pray for them. But it's kind of like David being deceptive. We don't really mean it. That shouldn't be. Here's another application. Be careful, please, of making drastic decisions when you're weary, when you're tired. That was one of David's problems. He was tired. Yeah, he was in a stressful situation. But folks, here's something very practical. Find a good place to rest, then carefully consider options and ask God and other godly people for wisdom. Don't always go with the very first solution that comes to your mind. That's probably not the best. Sometimes it is, but think about it. Pray about it. And then when in trouble, never go it alone. Seek help. Seek God's help. And that's the next practical thing here. Above all, I think, in this scenario, always seek God's counsel when in desperate straits, rather than let desperation lead you to hasty, unadvisable choices. Now, David was ultimately in a panic because God was allowing events into his life that were not a part of his own expectations. But I think God would certainly have had a better way for David to handle things than to go to the Philistines and act like a madman if David had just talked to God. But sometimes when we're in a panic and fearful, we forget to do that. That's the time where you need to do it the most is talk to God when you're at your most desperate situations. But in the end, what do you do when you fail on all those counts? When you're not loving to another uh, believer, when you make drastic decisions and you commit yourself to something you had no business committing yourself to, when you're in a panic and you make an unwise move or choice, folks, in the end, remember, God still has grace. When we forget all these important application points, we can cry out to God at any point like David did, even in the midst of very foolish choices, and he'll still hear us. He won't be tapping his foot and kind of looking at us crossed arms and you didn't ask for my help. So forget it. I'm not going to help you this time. You deserve what you got. He could have said that to David, but what is the point of Dave of, of Psalm 33 that we've been studying? David praises God for his grace and his mercy. That in this foolish situation, David found himself in God still rescued him. He still delivered him. God has grace for us when we forget um, what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to act in the Christian life. When we just go to him and call out to him. So folks, if you've had a week or a few days where you've failed, and we all have in one way or another, and you've come tonight ready to pray and call out desperately to a God and ask for his forgiveness and ask for his help, he's ready to hear. David reminds us of that. Go back and read Psalm 34. David, in the midst of this very embarrassing situation, says, now I remember God's grace and his mercy, and I will teach others the wisdom of seeking after him. Remember that? God can do that work in our lives.